All right, so before we talk about our two episodes for this week, Richard, we have a very special guest joining really? us for the first time on Trek About. Oh man, who is it? It's Zach Handlin, who writes the Star Trek reviews for the AV Club. Hello. <laughs> oh my uh, God, he's here. <laughs> so, uh, Zach, how are you doing today? I'm good. I'm Great. Good. So, we asked you on because um, uh, your Star Trek reviews on the AV Club are, bar none, my favorite part of that site. And I've been following them. Uh, I started reading them, I think, towards the end of your Next Generation coverage, which was about, what, a year ago now you ended that? Yeah, that yeah, sounds about right. Yeah, and you're, you're covering Deep Space Nine right now, so... Um, which you know has no relevance to us because we're still um, knee deep in the original series. But I literally don't know a thing about Deep Space Nine. <laughs> I, I know it has Quark, and that's about it. Yeah, you, you can just excuse Richard because he is not the Trekkie in this room. Uh, so, so you started writing um, reviews for the original series, uh, what in two thousand nine? So, so how did you get started with that? Did they approach you? Did you approach them? Um, well, I'd, I'd already been working for the AV Club for a little while. Uh, I started there doing uh, book reviews, and they'd started up – that was about the time that they started actually doing TV reviews for the first time. Um, and they'd actually just started that summer a program where they would do classic TV shows. Um, and I saw that, and I thought – I got really excited because I thought it was a really, would be a really fun idea. So I just pitched Star Trek because that to me seemed like – a really good fit and I, I liked the show and I thought I could come up with some interesting things to say about it. Um, but my initial pitch was sort of like, well, we don't really know you're writing well enough. Why don't you do write about this stuff for a little while and we'll see. Um, I didn't actually get to start writing Trek until about, I guess, six months later. I think maybe it was like the start of like around January or so. And I think one of the big reasons was the the new uh, Star Trek movie by J.J. Abrams that was coming out that summer. They yeah. figured that that would be a good time to, to jump back in the series. But um but yeah, I started and I, I actually had no plans to go on to Next Generation, but about halfway through the, I think my reviews for the second season of Star Trek, uh, my editor uh, at the time, Keith Phipps, said, uh, oh, somebody mentioned doing Next Gen, but I, I, I we figured that you'd want dibs on that. I'm like, oh, oh, yeah, yeah, sure. And then <laughs> everything sort of followed from there. Yeah, and here you are, you know, three and a half years later, um, you know, covering the third series in the franchise now. So, I mean, did you, did you expect that you would still be doing this? And it, I mean, it's, it's, I, you know, I get the sense at least from, from the number of comments uh, on your reviews every week that um, it, it's, it's one of the more popular, uh, they, what do they call it? They call it like the class, classic uh, AV club or something like that. Uh, TV club classic. Yeah. TV club classic. So, so did you expect that sort of reaction? I, I mean, I, I mean, it's the internet, so I figured that the Star Trek would be fairly popular, but um, the it didn't really take off until I started doing Next Gen. Um, the original series reviews were, were solidly popular, then they were obviously popular enough to keep going. Um, like I was, I think I was one of the few. I was lucky enough to be one of the few people who did a a classic uh, a TV Club classic review that actually went on the whole year. Um, most of them tend to be like a kind of seasonal. They'll do them over the summer where there's less new TV, but. For some reason, I guess mine were consistently read enough that um, I got to stick around. But yeah, it kind of like we had a nice, sm nice, solid, uh, dependable audience for the original track. And then when I started doing Next Generation, it just sort of exploded because I think there are probably more people who are familiar with it Next Gen at this point than there are people who are familiar with the, the original show. That gives us a very good uh, prognosis for the future then. <laughs> probably, yeah. I mean, what's the reception for animated series going to be? I'm excited about that. 
Oh, I actually, I actually did review the the animated series. Damn uh, it! Yeah, you did, you, but you you did just one, right? You did yeah, like the sort of yeah, overview of the entire series. Episodes. Yeah, yeah so why why did you decide to do that? Did, did you think there just wasn't enough there to do like uh, you know two episodes per week? Like yeah, you're doing it now? just didn't seem. I, it, it seemed like the audience would be too small, and there really wasn't enough. I like the animated series, but I, I don't I don't think it's like. I think it's kind of problematic and kind of sluggish in a lot of ways. Yeah. So it felt it felt like the best thing to do would basically be um, just to, just to, to try and push through, do one big review of it, and not try and get bogged down in reviewing um, weekly. It just because what like you you need to find a balance between stuff you're interested in writing about and you, you you like you feel like you can come up with good things to say and stuff that readers have actually seen and will be able to you know. There, there are. I mean, you you get you get people who will read stuff that they haven't seen the shows before. But most of the time, you really want stuff that people are familiar with and go, "Oh, I like that. I'd I'd like to talk about that or, or hear some thoughts about it." As opposed to, you know, the animated series, which would be after the first couple of reviews, you'd probably just kind of probably lose most of the people who are reading. Yeah, absolutely. That's good advice for life. <laughs> <laughs> you, you've you've really said something profound to Richard. No, right well, yes. <laughs> So, so um, one of the things I find most interesting about um, the way that you approach your your Star Trek reviews, uh, because they're 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 a little different in that. I mean, I, I think a lot of um, the the Trek coverage out there um, focuses on one aspect. So it either focuses on it as like a TV show, or it focuses on it as sort of its cultural phenomenon, or um, sort of its its uh, uh, you know sort of its um, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, I don't know. What word are you looking? I for? I don't know. Let's just leave it alone. And, uh, you know, but, but on the other hand, too, you, you, you focus on it as, as um, all of these aspects together and kind of what you can find from the show. And I, I really like your approach because I find it sort of a, a, a fully rounded approach. How, 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 did you, how did you hit on that approach? <laughs> well, honestly, um, it's just the most natural approach to me. And I don't mean to say that like, oh, well, you know, I'm perfect. So I'm so smart. Well, when you ask a genius for work, you get a genius <laughs> level work. I mean, come um, on, guys. It's, it's probably more to do with the fact that I'm not as much a, a TV historian as, as a lot of the critics on the site. Like, uh, my, my, one of my, my other editor, uh, my, my TV club editor, Todd Vanderwerf is a terrific writer, great critic. And he has so much knowledge at his fingertips. He's lived and breathed TV um, seems like most of his life, whereas I kind of approach it as this is something I, I, I enjoy and I like and I've read a bit about, but I'm also kind of uh, more of an amateur when it comes to um, – so, so I just – I kind of – the way I approach the reviews is just the way I approach the shows. They're just their stories, and I, I, I do wish at times that I did have more of a sense of the historical impact because those are Star Trek. And, I mean, Next Gen is hugely important. I think it was one of the first major uh, in-syndication series, which is huge. Um, and Star Trek, obviously, original show had some had amazing history behind it. It's just not the aspect that I'm that I know as much about, and I'm too lazy to do research. So I just sort of approach it from from that from my angle, I guess. Well, that that's interesting. I mean, talk about your your history with with uh, Star Trek a little bit, because I, I I know from your Deep Space Nine reviews that that you've this is pretty much your first time working your way through the entire series. And so, um, were were you an original series guy? Were you a Next Generation guy? Uh, I think I think when I was a kid, um, I don't even know if I made it. I, I was I was more I think to be honest, I was probably more a movie guy when I was a kid. Because um, we the the ones I saw the most were the original series movies. Um, I do remember watching a bunch of the original series when I was a kid, um, and some of Next Gen. But I was never. I, I don't even know if I'd go so far to say as I was a completely committed fan. It was just something that always seemed like a part of 
of the the cultural background. Like you always had Star Trek playing somewhere. So that was one of the reasons I, I kind of enjoyed this series. It's, it gives me a sense to give me a chance to go back and really dive in deep and sort of have a kind of complete more much more of a completist look at the shows. Because I don't think I've seen any uh, of, of all the series. I have not seen the complete episode run of any of the series i've covered so far hmm. um i think i'd seen most of the original series when i went back to it uh at least once i think i'd seen large parts of next gen but there were definitely there were a ton of episodes especially in the later seasons that i'd never seen before some of them were phenomenal too um and like i said with the deep space nine it, that was by the time deep space nine came around i was i think i was in college or getting ready to go to college well, it was a couple years before i went to college but it was like i was kind of graduating out past the point where i would I would sit around and watch TV with my, my parents as much as I used to because uh, I used to watch a lot of these with my dad. And once DS9 just happened to be in that window where I was basically not really spending much time watching television. Um, so I just – and once you – because DS9 is such a um, continuity-heavy show, it can be a little bit daunting to try and jump back in. And I, I kind of dismissed it. I was like, well, it's fine. I saw a couple episodes. It's okay. And, and then uh, it's been just wonderful uh, revisiting it now and seeing it for the first time and just – it just really impressive so well i think that touches on something uh you know maybe you can speak on uh, richard and i actually watched trekkies last night um <laughs> i hadn't seen it in years and this is the first time richard had ever seen it um he swears that i told him not to watch it which i don't remember it yeah i like asked anything you I at say. one point <laughs> maybe it was a different track movie i think so uh you know and it's that movie's interesting because it, it came out in in uh, 1999 and so that was right after I mean, I think that was pretty much Star Trek at its height. You know, it, it still had two TV shows on the air. Um, it was just after the 30th anniversary. Uh, you know, all of the original series cast were still alive at that point. And, you know, we're looking at it, you know, almost 20 years later, we're, we're quickly approaching the, the 50th anniversary of Star Trek. And, you know, there are no TV shows on the air, haven't been for almost 10 years um, the J.J. Abrams movie came out and was wildly successful. But aside from that, it kind of seems like, you know, the show is or the franchise as a whole is kind of on hiatus. I mean, it's even really mm. difficult to find on television now. So do you I'm, I'm curious to get your thoughts on do, do you think that Star Trek um, is as relevant as it was, you know, in, in the in the 90s, 80s, 70s? And do you think that it's it's going to get that sort of like cultural relevance again? Uh, um, sorry. That was a nice reaction. Oh. <laughs> no, well, I think I, that said it all. <laughs> I think I think you can be pretty sure that yeah, I don't think it has the same kind of relevance that it did in the specifically in the nineties, the, the early nineties, when it just when I think Next Gen was doing some of its best work and DS Nine was kind of coming into its own. Yeah, and I mean, Next Generation um, was a was a top ten show. Uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, it was it was, it was the, beating the it was beating uh, uh, it was beating network stuff. And we were yeah. kids at that point of next gen, so it was kind of a, for you especially more, since you're more of the Trekkie, yeah. uh, a very, being around, you know, seven, eight, nine is the perfect age to get into Star Trek and have you love it for life. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I, and the, the tricky thing about the Abrams movies, well, Abrams movie, and, you know, presume, hopefully we'll see the second one, is that as fun as they are, they're also a different kind of Trek. They're much more in keeping with the sort of big blockbustery kind of, you know, explosions and broad humor and, and, um, and not as much into sort of thoughtful moments or character work. Um, so it's harder. It's more like Abrams is playing off these iconic images than he is and really extending the franchise. Hmm. I mean, it'd be kind of cool. I, I don't know. You, you don't want to, you don't want to bring something back where the, 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 
the magic or whatever is gone. You don't want to just bring it back just for the sake of the the, the name. But it would be kind of cool to get another Trek series on the air, especially with the, the popularity of the Abrams movies. Do you, I think, think, do you think we'll get just, one? I just it does seem like it'd be a good time for it. I'm not sure where it would fit, but it it just does like it, especially like stuff like Fringe going off the air. There really aren't a lot of solid sci-fi shows anymore, and, and it does feel like that that's a niche that that it'd be nice to be filled, and it'd be nice to have like a especially not have it like just I don't know. I it'd be cool to have a new Trek series, I guess. So and, I don't know if you can answer this, but because uh, Eric and I have our dream Trek series in mind, what's your dream Trek series? I've heard a lot of good ideas. Um, I've heard people talking about like kind of the the lower levels of like a ship or like the lower functionaries, which would be fun, or like the kind of red shirt kind of guys. The, <laughs> um, oh, that would be a really terrifying anthology series. Like every episode, it follows a red shirt like through his day, and like you get like <laughs> you know you you find he's with his girlfriend, you know they're talking, and then he gets you know on the planet, and every episode ends with his death. Yeah, that would be good. That would be really yeah. grim. Yeah. Well, what do you, what do you guys what do you guys think of your ideal new Trek yeah. series? Well, I'll go first because uh, you know I, I'm a huge Trek fan, obviously, and I, I've watched the show for many years. And, and Richard probably has a much, I think Richard will probably have a much more interesting question answer to this question. But my dream Trek series as a as a Trekkie would be um, a prequel done right, basically. So Enterprise, but not like that, and uh, one that sort of covers. Um, the Romulan war and how that affected, you know, the humans and, and Andorians and all the races that went into founding the Federation and then how that happened. And I kind of think that that would be a really relevant show right now as well with, with everything that's going on in the world. And I think that's something that Star Trek does, does really well. And I think that's one of the, the, the best things it does. So I would like to see that personally. Hmm. I'd watch it. Well, what about you? Uh, well, I, 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 I've come to TV in the age of TV with continuity, so, you know, Six Feet Under, Twin Peaks, you know, those kind of shows. Babylon uh, 5. Babylon 5. Yeah, Babylon 5. Um, basically, I want Babylon 5. So, uh, <laughs> no, I, I, what I think is interesting about um, why I like Wrath of Khan, because that's one of the few Star Trek things I had seen prior to doing this podcast, um, I really like how s- that movie kind of d- talks about the implications of Space Seed. Uh Kirk is doing all of these things and making all of these decisions that are going to have irrevocable, irrevocable consequences, and they're never really explored. So I would love to see a series that takes a reboot, maybe with the Abrams cast even, and remakes some iconic episodes and then spends the rest of its time just following those implications. I think that would be an interesting one. Take the five or six best Star Trek episodes. Yeah. Maybe. And at the end, like, you have, like, all of these Horda coming in and, like, attacking the bad guy. <laughs> and, then, and, 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 and then you have, like, the tally-ho guy, and he's like, I've learned my lesson, you know. And, like, there's cannons there and everything. And then, you know, you're going to have what, – what, what's the guys from Arena? The Gorn? No, 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 the other guys from Arena. Uh, 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 the Metrons! The Metrons. They're going to have it. Oh, it's going to be great. Just, just – I'll, I'll be – I have, like, a notebook full of scripts. I think you want Star Trek done by Gilbert and Sullivan, basically. <laughs> yeah. There could be, like, musical numbers. Your hero can be, like, singing all the time. <laughs> so, um, so Zach, uh, you're, you're working your way through Deep Space Nine right now, as we said. Uh, you probably got, what, another year and a half or so to go because you're kind of starting the fourth season in your reviews right now. Um, are you going to continue on to do Voyager? <laughs> I I can't imagine there'd be that much enough of an audience for it to justify it. I mean... 
I there, I'm sure that a lot of people who read the DS9 would hang around because there's a nice little Star Trek community there that mm-hmm. on the the AV Club. But it just seems like Voyager has such a dismal reputation, and it's seven seasons long that I'm not sure it'd be worth the the time because you know the 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 previous series like uh, uh, Next Gen has its ups and downs. The first season is dreadful, but it at least has like some really high quality runs. It's like it is legitimately a great show for a good part of its its time on the air, as opposed to something like Voyager, which always seems like it has a few good episodes, but it's so completely compromised that I'm not sure I'd be willing to put it in the sort of canon the same yeah. way you'd put the previous three series. But I don't know. I mean, it's more honestly. I it's nice to have the steady work, I, and I've yet to completely run out of things to say about Star Trek, which is amazing me, amazing to me. So. If if I were to get to the end of DS Nine and my editors would say, "Okay, we want you to do Voyager," I'm not sure what I would say. Mm. I, I I mean, I'd probably say yes because it's like it's again it's steady work and I'm curious, but I would not bet money on on us doing that. We might do something else, might some sort of I don't know one off essay about Voyager and one off essay about Enterprise or something. But um, yeah, I really I, I would not bet on it. I guess. Like I don't want to see Voyager. I know nothing about Voyager, but just everybody says it like it's a swear word. Like, uh, I, you know, I, I, you see, like you, 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 you're, you're like bad. Well, not like I'm not stuttering, but to defend it, you can't even say, "Well, it's a pretty okay show." Like, no, I, I, I don't, I don't like Voyager. <laughs> yes, um, I, I find it. I find sometimes it's entertaining. Most times it's not. I think. The interesting thing about Voyager, and, and, and you know, maybe this is a point in the column for, for you to cover it, Zach, is I've never really seen episode-by-episode episode analysis of a show imploding in slow motion. And <laughs> I kind of think that it would be interesting for you to write about Voyager just on that basis. Why it went badly, what exactly is wrong with it, when it gets things right, and ultimately what kind of star trek it is well that's one of the interesting things i am finding the more i hear people talking about it it almost seems like there is a platonic idea of what trek is and people judge the series not as much on their own quality but by how how trek they are i mean everybody says like you know well yeah you know tos is very trek and you know next generation is the trekest trek you know but you know Deep Space Nine, you'll have you, but everyone's like, yeah, Voyager isn't Trek enough, or, you know, Enterprise just gets Trek wrong. Hmm. You know, the, people, the, people used to, there are people, tons of people who did not, who turned on DS9, especially when it was airing, because they didn't think it was Trek enough, because it's, it's not optimistic in the same way that the earlier series were. It's a very different show, but yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah, I've, was... I've, I've always argued that, that Deep Space Nine is, is, tonally at least, is, I think, the most consistent Trek um, with the original series. I, I really believe that, so... Um... Well, then that brings up the question, what is the ineffable essence of Trek? Yeah. Mm. Well, uh, you know, if, uh, you know, maybe when we finally get to Deep Space Nine, um, we can have Zach back on and and we can talk about that. Okay. Uh, So do you want to stick around and talk about a a piece of the action in the Immunity Syndrome with us? Sure. I watched him. Okay. (laughs) Awesome. So uh, a piece of the action. Uh, I'll I'll let let Zach start um, (laughs) since he's our guest. Uh, uh, what, what, we didn't offer him like pie or anything. We are <laughs> terrible hosts. What? What do you? But what, then again, he didn't bring like cookies. So yeah, no, 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 or, or wine or anything. Yeah, sorry. you are the worst guest. What? What do you think about a piece of the action? I think it's a very goofy episode that 
there are scenes that sort of get by on the fun and goofiness of it, but it does kind of wear thin. It doesn't have a lot. Like the plot, the the structure of the plot is 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 basically like is really lazy yeah. because basically like two thirds of the episode is just Kirk and Spock and McCoy running back to different <laughs> gangsters and then getting captured and then running back to the other gangster and getting captured and then escaping it. It's like it, it it's ba- it a lot of, like Trek has a long. I mean that's one of the standard jokes about Trek is that they, they there's a seem to be a period of time, um, in which. The, the, they basically just said, well, we need an episode this week. Let's just have them go to a planet that's like an amusement park based on this certain theme. Like, it's Gangster World or it's Roman World yeah. or it's, you know, Jack the Ripper World. Um, Is there a Jack the Ripper World? Well, uh, Not really. Fold. There's a Jack the Ripper episode, though. Um, oh, God. But- no, God. No, 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 no. Oh, God. Well, no, Wolf in the Fold. That's the one. <laughs> we already talked about that. Yeah, Richard. I know. And I hated that. Oh, I, I had blanked it from my memory. Well, I, um, it, I, I I thought that it was uh, it had some like Shatner was clearly enjoying himself. Oh yeah, uh, you know I, I, I have to say the first I first season I had thought well Shatner's a lot more subtle than I thought he was, and now this season he's Shatnering himself, and it's 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 great. I I love watching him ham it up. Yeah, I mean uh, in this episode, uh, this episode especially, I, I think mm. he's he's really like out out Shatnering himself, and, and <laughs> he's, he's you know it's it's funny because I I really like this episode. I agree with you, Zach. I think it's extremely goofy, but I think it's extremely goofy in a really fun way. Uh, and only I think it's goofiness that only like Star Trek fans can really appreciate in some respects. The episode kind of is circular. Nothing really happens. I'm not even sure why McCoy is there <laughs> because he doesn't do anything. Mm. Um, he disappears for large stretches of the episode and comes back and says something. And you're kind of like, oh, right, you exist. Uh, but it's just, you know, it's it's the kind of thing that only the original series can really get away with. I mean... There's that scene where Kirk is trying to drive a car. <laughs> Spock is telling him to let the clutch out, and it's totally ridiculous. But it's also really funny, and I think that sums up the episode. Well, okay, so going into this, I had seen exactly three episodes of the original series Star Trek. This was one of them. The other two were Trouble with Tribbles and Shore Leave. So the three of those episodes, in my mind, like, have formed my conception of what star trek is um that being said which are very weird i i now that i'm watching it i am understand i'm putting them in context they're they're strange episodes they're goofy comedic episodes they're not the but i have to say this is one of my favorite episodes just because it's a fucking fun episode like there is there aren't any real points in this episode where i'm bored i i Everything they're they're wearing dumb suits. They're speaking in funny accents. There's it's a big broad comedy episode, but it's an excellently done big broad comedy episode. Yeah, and I and I think you know the 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 most maybe the most interesting thing about the episode is is the fact that um, I think this is well. I mean, we covered the trouble with tribbles last week, and this is the second track comedy episode in as many weeks, and it's really funny. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. Maybe Zach thinks we're insane, but <laughs> I, I don't know. I, I, I really like this episode. I, it, like I said, it's stupid. It's dumb. It's goofy, but it's got a certain charm and a certain sort of like, we're going to put on a play kind of atmosphere to it that I really like. Um, I mean, the guy who plays the boss was 
uh, Mel from 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 Alice. Uh, oh, Alice, which was I watched all break. the time. <laughs> that was his big break in the seventies. Um, I don't know. I don't know. I, it's interesting because to, I, I I actually noticed this as an iconic episode, partially because it's so weird. But um, there was a very obscure Nintendo game based on Star Trek that had a level based on this episode. Fizzbin has pop, passed into popular culture. Um, talking about the things that you know, the, the the philosophies of the Federation. This is a Prime Directive episode. They explicitly are talking about, well, we messed up with this culture and we have to fix it and we have to figure out how to do that. Um, so I, I, I think even as silly as it is, it's still an extremely important episode and it's still an episode which does some world building even. Um, yeah, I, I, I wonder what your, what your, what your take is on, on the whole Prime Directive aspect, um, of this episode, Zach is because, you know, I don't, I don't think that the original series really does the Prime Directive all that well, Oh, they, they do but <laughs> they kind of go the opposite way in the, in the next generation where they take the prime directive like way too seriously. And they sort of like kind of construct the federal, they sort of try and figure out what the Federation would be like if it was actually a government. Uh, (laughs) So, so what, I mean, what, what do you, what do you think about that? Um, The prime directive in the original series was sort of, it seems more of like a suggestion than a directive. Um, it, It basically was kind of like a guy, like we probably shouldn't mess around with these people, but there's also the basic assumption that whatever Kirk wants to do is for the best. Um, I mean, there's that episode. What is it that the you guys you guys must have done the Apple already? Haven't oh you? yeah, yeah. Well, there's that episode where he goes down and finds this idyllic community where it's like, well, you guys have a machine that's running you. I don't like the machine. I'm just going to destroy the machine. And countless times over the course of the series, he finds some sort of civilization that's being run by some sort of that he doesn't like the way things are going. So they just decide to blow everything up. Like the prime directive in the original series, it's something they mention, but it's also not. It never comes across as the be-all and end-all in the same way, like you say, that next-gen does. I actually kind of like that in next-gen in that because it really put the characters in kind of impossible situations where yeah. they would they would really want to help, but they're like, we can't because the consequences of this, we don't really know where this would go. Whereas in the original series, it was much more sort of – it kind of it kind of mirrors the way kind of America would look – was sort of looking at maybe foreign policy if you wanted to get really um, – all pretentious about it because in like oh, we the love 60s pretentious well the six there's much more that sense in the, in the 60s of like we're just going to go in and fix everything because we we're america and that's what we do and then you know vietnam came along and that you know, we, we did not do that there um and so you have with next gen you have this much more cautious approach to to exploring other places you have this much we realize that if we try we're us us ruling everything is not an ideal situation whereas in the original series there's this inherent optimism of the nobility of the characters involved. And there's also, I mean, everyone's so just rambunctious and kind of crazed in the original series, which is one of the reasons it's so fun. Um, it's like a bunch of, a bunch of just like a bunch of teenagers just hanging out and being crazy. And Spock just sort of standing off to the side, shaking his head. Um, <laughs> yeah, he's and, the dad. And, and, and uh, yeah, there's, there was never like in the, the next gen got to the point where the world building would actually restrict the storytelling. And sometimes that'd be good. And sometimes it could be bad in the original series. The world building was more an after effect of the storytelling. So you'd have stuff like this, where they'd mention the prime directive where, Oh, we shouldn't have messed around with this culture. So we have to fix it at the same time. Kirk does go in and basically make some arrangement with the Federation where they're like, he somehow put it, it'll put up somebody in charge. Like he's in changed the entire structure of the, well, that city's government, and and that's a good thing. Like, like oh, that's how. And then McCoy makes. Oh, by the way, I left my I left my uh, 
my communication device back on the planet and it's considered a punchline as opposed to oh my god (laughs) it's yeah and i i I mean i think that that especially i mean that's a good example and i think that's that's i think that's more a function of the this particular episode being a comedy episode because i can see that that exact action in a different episode like um i don't know uh, i'm trying to think of a more serious one like maybe i don't know miri is jumping to mind or something like where that would seem a lot more uh problematic um and there you know i'm also thinking of something like mirror mirror where uh the whole basis of that episode is they they need the dilithium crystals from that planet and they're they're very much like no we're not gonna you know we're not gonna fuck you over um and that's sort of a prime directive thing uh I, I think that we can go a couple different directions with, with this, um, you know, because we talked a little bit about uh, the sort of soft power aspect of Star Trek and how that mirrors, you know, American foreign policy of the 1960s, as you said. Um, but we can also talk about, uh, you know, the prime directive and, and, and the characters in the original series being much more, I don't want to say immature, but, it's a it's a younger it's a younger government it's a younger civilization because you're looking i mean if you want to get all trekkie about it um you know the next generation takes place about 100 years after the founding of the federation and the next generation takes place 200 years after the founding of the federation that's hugely important the first i mean the original series is very much a western in that that we're exploring and we're dangerous and we could die at any point whereas next gen everything is much safer what yeah. was the mission of the next gen? Was it just a five-year mission to explore and et cetera, et cetera? There was or? no time limit. They were just supposed to go out exploring, and a lot of the times they'd also do missions for the – their mission was basically just go out there, you know, head out and mess around. I mean they they did do exploring, but they also did a lot of, of ferrying around people like digging okay. carries or, or trying to help. I mean and on the original series, the, the Enterprise did some of that too. But, yeah, but um, there is less territory. I guess I, I get it. So there, everything. Oh, the map is unfilled, you know. And then it, in yeah. the sequel, it like you you have a bigger territory. To yeah, explore. it's very. It's like, it's like but basically, you have you have the original series is just the pure thrill of exploration. The next gen is sort of like that thrill tempered with a sense of responsibility. While DS Nine is basically we're not really exploring. We're just trying to live a life in this new place and figure out how to balance everything. Like it's very. Each series has a very different intent. Um, and one of the things, I mean, you could like in the original series, people died a lot. Yeah. Uh, whereas opposed to next gen, you had some occasional deaths and yes, you had a couple, like, like one major character death be- just because they wanted to get her off the show. But, um, the, like you did not, it wasn't treated the same way as the original series where in the original series, you just assumed if you were a security guy, you had a lifespan of maybe in the next episode. <laughs> yeah. And I, uh, you know, going back to the, going back to the prime director aspect of it, um, Although before I do that, I do want to mention, uh, and this is maybe a point in Voyager's favor, um, although maybe not. There, I remember there is a sort of a speech that Janeway gives in, in some Voyager episode where where she's talking about the difference between um, you know the, the Federation of the twenty fourth century and, and the status of, of the Alpha Quadrant. And I'm getting really you know geeky here. Richard, I have no idea. What's Richard happening. doesn't know what the hell the Alpha Quadrant is. He's, he's... <laughs> are you speaking words? Are you reading Finnegan's Wake at me? <laughs> But, you know, she's, to paraphrase, she says something like, you know, imagine what it was like in the time of Kirk. You know, the Alpha Quadrant still largely unexplored. The Federation on the verge of war with the Klingons and the Romulans and, and how different it is now and how much more settled it is and, you know, all those kind of things. So, but, uh, but I think, um, 
you know, to, to talk about sort of the prime directive, prime directive aspects of uh, a piece of the action, it, it is sort of played as a joke. And I think, again, it's, it's played as a joke more because it's a comedy episode. I, I, I can see this episode being done as a serious episode, perhaps not with gangsters because that's ridiculous. But well, to be fair, that Nintendo game I mentioned, the plot of that was um, you you have to go back and get the communicator to avoid, you know. So and that was done as a serious. You know, have you guys done the Nazi episode yet? Power There's a Nazi episode. No, we haven't done that one. Oh, yet. sorry, up, spoiler alert. I think I think that one does it much more seriously. That one has a very different. Uh, it's kind of a similar setup, but it has a, a different, a much more serious. Approach. I would yeah, hope so, unless Mel Brooks directed it, because <laughs> very few people can make Nazis funny, and he's one of the few. Well, I, I think this episode is, is, is interesting as well because the the idea is that the Iotians are imitative, as they say, and they sort of latch on to anything and, 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 and construct – they're sort of like a blank slate and they construct their culture on, on whatever they, they, they find interesting. And, you know, it, it's also never mentioned, but the fact that, you know, Chicago in the 1920s was so lawless because of prohibition and – there's a there's no there's no real sense of cause and effect in this episode for for why the civilization is like that um, because they just think it's cool it's a bunch of kids playing cops and right, playing gangsters yeah basically. but people are dying though yeah but i mean maybe just death is cheap but my question is let's talk about something much more interesting why haven't the klingons found this planet by the way the ruthless klingons who would be wonderful in overnight changing a Entire culture to match their own. This is probably the easiest planet for them to ever conquer. They just got to show up and be like, do you see the ship? This is fucking awesome. Yeah, that's true. Um, I guess they didn't have a budget to put the Klingons in this episode. Oh, man. Um, I don't know. It, 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 it's, it's interesting to have this idea of an imitative culture. Um, but then that, 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 that one of the issues in the Prime Directive episodes has been that a stagnated culture is is a bad thing, and that one must have not. Uh, 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 we, we've talked about a lot of episodes as, as the moral being: you can't create your own universe. You know, anybody who tries to fit a planet to fit under their rule is that's bad. In a weird way, this is Kirk saying that even the Federation can't have that power over a culture. You know, even Earth's culture, the Chicago in the twenties. You know. Or they talk about it's they, – they, they, but maybe they're, they are being hypocritical. Maybe the reason the communicator is treated as a punchline is because, well, if they're going to be imitating any other culture, it's probably the best one. Maybe, yeah, that, that may be. I mean, maybe I, the episode is about Klingons taking over <laughs> Iosha. Well, uh, the episode ends on that, like – static pullback shot of Kirk, which I don't think they ever did in any other <laughs> episode. It was basically like visual punchline, uh, which I always find funny. But you're right that the show and Kirk especially don't view a stagnant culture as a good thing. I think that's an interesting point in light of this episode because they never touch on that. They, they're touching on it much more. We need to clean up our mess. And so it almost paints the Federation as more worried about them contaminating other cultures to create rivals for themselves than they are Mm. stagnant cultures, which this is. 
So it almost paints the Federation know, in a different but, light, I think. But it's a bad culture. It, 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 it's a culture that we can objectively say is bad because, as you point out, people are getting killed. Uh, the, the, also, there are no there are no police, yeah. which is interesting. Yeah. There's no yeah. cops, even though they have a book about they base their culture on a book about the ga- gangsters in the 20th century. They have no police whatsoever. It's and weird. Yeah, and that's a good point because it it it, it almost. Uh, it implies that the Iotians are imitative, but only to a certain degree. And they, they have a certain sense of what they want their culture to look like. And, you know, maybe they want their culture to be violent and, and anarchic. See, I don't know. I just took that as simply Chicago in the 1920s. Most of the cops around weren't exactly honest. So, you know, the, the, the reason this was all allowed to go, you know, Capone had a billion cops in his pocket, you know, obviously. So assuming I would just assume that, you know, that's the same case here, but, you know, there's only so much time you could make in an episode, and the car scene was much funnier than having a corrupt cop, I guess. Yeah, but, but I mean, you know, to, 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 to back up Zach a little bit, because, you know, we are the, we are the two Trekkies here, and we're going to, te- you know, tag team you, Richard. Um, we, don't, we don't see any cops at all. So, I mean, you would think that they would be there. Yeah, but yeah, this is this is clearly a society which has no, which makes it weird, even more strange that they're so determined to track them down because it's a society that has no, the law and order is basically just, what is the law and order there? That the gangsters, I mean, the gang, gangsters exist because of law. You don't have without without law, which would make the gangsters' efforts more profitable. But it's you don't really have gangsters in the same way. It's this weird. They're basically kind of basically what it kind of seems to me like is a, is a scriptwriter decided he wanted to have a planet full of gangsters and then sort of reverse engineered the rest of the script which means it doesn't entirely hold up like to logical scrutiny but it's ep- fun but it's you know but, but the episode is less about uh, uh breaking laws and more about conquering territory i mean picture these not picture all these people in like medieval outfits and it suddenly becomes rival kings just trying to take each other's lands they that's all they're doing you know maybe there is no money really passing by this could be a cashless society even this could be a money-free society why do they keep talking about having a piece of the action it's it of course no i will it's irrelevant damn it no um shut richard up i've been trying trying to do that for 23 episodes now um I would consider that secondary to they're more concerned with territory. They are more concerned with each other's land. They're more concerned with, you know, getting one up over the other guy. So it, it, it seems just more competition and fighting so rather is than this a gay sex planet. <laughs> if only. I mean, I would be interested in watching that episode, but is there a gay sex planet episode? Is there any sex planet episode? Yes, there is. We've seen several. There of is a sex planet but we don't see it I, oh God, until the next generation. Oh, yeah. God. Oh God, that episode. <laughs> <laughs> Richard, Richard just got up and left. He's done. He, he doesn't want to do this anymore. <laughs> Richard, please come back. We, we still have another episode to cover. <laughs> I really don't want to see the next gen space, uh, sex planet episode. I just, it doesn't need to happen. Look, we still have to get through the third season of the original series, and that's going to be difficult in and of itself. Is so. this that one will have the Nazi episode? No. Uh, Zach, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe the Nazi episode is, is, is fairly soon after this one. 
Yeah, I think they're, yeah. Um, they're, I actually don't remember it too well, but I do. I do. It is in the second season, so. Yeah, I mean, I, I you know, it, it's funny to go, to go back to something you said about um, Star Trek doing those sort of like, you know, here are space Romans, here are space Nazis, here are space gangsters. Um, the show has a reputation for doing that, but it doesn't really do it that much and it only ever really did it in the second season uh the first season they didn't have anything like that and in the third season i i I don't think they did anything like that either so well the third season has specter the gun which is a great episode but it is it is very much let's it the well one of the reasons it's a great episode is it up front acknowledges the fact that oh we're in the old west but it is like the old west yeah Uh, yeah that's true that's true but we'll we'll talk about that when we get to specter of the gun richard don't get too excited it sounds awesome (laughs) um I think it they, it gets this reputation because it is so striking when they do that because the, the episodes look very different and I'm really loving the costumes in this season. Like I I don't know how much people have talked about that, but I think all of the costume work in this season has been awesome. So especially in episodes like this, you know, Kirk and Spock in their uh, little you know gangster uniform, in their zoot suits basically, and they look good in them. I mean, that's that's part of the appeal, I would say, of this episode. No, I yeah, I agree with that. I think I think seeing Kirk and Spock running around in in, in zoot suits is fun. Uh, Kirk has a furry little hat on. Um, you know, they God, have, what is up with that hat? <laughs> that hat is ridiculous. I I think that perhaps they actually went to a jazz club in L.A. and 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 stole that from someone because that that was definitely like we are serious about wearing hats. Maybe it was Shatner's like personal hat from like his. It's what happened to the Tribbles. Oh geez. Oh, I'm sad now. Yeah, they turned Tribble into that hat. And, and, and like, there's Tribble for coats. It became like oh, a God. cottage industry for the Federation. Wow. Why isn't Tribble fur like a thing? Like, because think about it. Like, they don't have souls, and they like breed like crazy. It would be really cheap to make. You know, so I think I'm gonna become a Tribble furrier. Oh God. All right. Well, there's one other thing that I want to mention about this episode. Um, Spock says something really weird at some point, and he he. I, I, I want to see if, if if either of you have a thought on this because I really don't understand what it means. Oh, is it um, the line about never calculating the odds for a royal fizzbin? Because no. That was, <laughs> well, that is a great scene. That that, the, that is a classic scene. I, I'm surprised we have not talked about that, but that is a wonderful scene. Well, I, I think we'll do but, a, we'll do a quick roundup of our favorite comedic episodes in this episode. But oh boy, um, no. I there, Spock says something at some point where he says the Iotian culture is based on moral inversion. And I don't, <laughs> I don't really get what he means by that. Do either of you have any thoughts? Uh, no, it sounds, it sounds like they were just trying to make him sound smart. Sometimes <laughs> they do that. That could be. It's just, yeah, it's a fancy way to me of saying that they're an immoral culture. So where we see like this society as you know chaos going amok, you know people killing people for no real reason. Um, they see it as a great fun time. Like what they we, we we view what they're doing as immoral, they view it as moral. They're just, you know, morale it's a mirror world, I guess. Okay. All right. Um so I guess uh we'll move on to the immunity syndrome in a couple minutes, but I, I just want to get you know, ask everybody here, um, you know, what 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 are some of your, your favorite, I think, comedic moments in this episode? Because uh I think I have two. I think well, aside from the ones we've already mentioned, I, I love Scotty um trying to use their slang that that never ceases to crack me up and then you also have spock using a little bit of it (laughs) and that's just funny as well because he 
doesn't really do it well. <laughs> and then Shatner does it brilliantly, and it's hilarious. And, he, and it's funny because... He's he, just speaking this shit up, yeah. It's it's really weird because I think Shatner's performance in this episode is maybe a little more subtle than we're giving it credit for because it's obviously very broad. And, oh, yeah. And, and when he plays comedy, he plays it very broadly. But at the same time... Uh, you know, he starts out as the captain and then he slowly, as he's realizing how this planet works and what he needs to do to, to, to fix this situation and to get his, his crew back up to the ship, um, he becomes more and more of a gangster until at the very end, he's out gangstering them in his speech patterns. Yeah, and you could tell he's just having fun with himself. Like, he's enjoying doing playing this role because he figures... You know, this is an imitative culture. The only way to get around it is by kind of playing dress-up as well and beating them at their own game. And because he's Kirk, he's going to be a better gangster than they are because, you know, he's OG. <laughs> uh, I'm surprised there are no bands called Penny Annie Operators because I kind of want to Did you that. look it up? No, no, but I would have heard of them. I'm sure there they might be. I would play in a band called the Penny Annie Operators. <laughs> Uh, what about, what about you, Zach? I mean, I know that you think this episode's kind of goofy and maybe a bad way, but, but you know, what do you, th- what, what's maybe one of your funniest, uh, one of your most favorite moments there? Um, I'm not really, huh. I, I can't really think of anything off the top of my head. Um, I do like the bit at the end where Kirk gets up on the, the table and starts ranting and raving. I thought that was pretty funny. Oh yeah. That's a good um, one. And as always, Nimoy's like reactions to stuff just kill me every time. Just like his really we're doing this really okay like just that kind of um i don't know i i just find him very funny in episodes like this where he has to kind of kind of goes along with it and at the same time's like oh lord you humans um, yeah it's hard to play a straight man and he does it really well yeah totally. yeah he does he does all right um well, before- i love my bit i'm sorry my favorite is the krakow's secretary she is my <laughs> favorite part of this episode because during her scene like when he's like snap you know and she's sitting on kirk's lap like Anytime people are looking at each her, she has the seductive expression, and when they're all turned away or focusing on something else, her expression is just really bored, like this is her job. But the difference between the two of them is extremely subtle, so you can tell that she just doesn't really care about doing this. It's just like her paycheck. I yeah. loved that. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, do you have anything else about this, uh, Zach or Richard? I'm good. All right, let's triple it out, Richard. I think this gets a 10 triple episode. Really? Yeah. 10. It, it, you know, it's a flawed episode. It's not the best episode, but I enjoyed it a lot. And I don't think that it, it, it's, again, one of those, if you fixed the flaws that we talked about, it wouldn't have made it a better episode. I, I just think for what this episode is trying to do, this is one of, it's going to be very hard to top this as a broad comedic episode. All right. Uh Zach, uh, since you're here, would you like to rank this episode between one and ten triples? Remember that this episode does not really feature Chekhov, so you know that may, <laughs> that, that that could weigh into the score. <laughs> I I think I'll give it a seven. Um, I just I find the He's playing a conservative because he doesn't know that we don't really take triple series. <laughs> oh, okay. You can okay. give it like uh, we've given zero triple episodes. Like I think Wolf and the Foal that did not get many. Triples hey, I like me. Wolf and the Foal, but we we don't have to revisit <laughs> that that argument. Well, I gave it. I gave it when I reviewed it for the AV Club. I gave it a B plus, and I think I'm a little harsher on it now, mainly because I find that the scripts. The back, I find the back and forth stuff really could have been tightened better. Yeah. But it is pretty it is pretty fun to watch and the idea of like gangster world is, is pretty cool. So. 
Yeah, gangster theme park. Well, I I, I will seem like a, a and also ran now because I was also going to give it seven triples, but I I thought it before you, Zach. So <laughs> that's definitely possible. That's yeah. that's, uh... All right. Well, uh, let's move on to the immunity syndrome. I'll let Richard go this time. What did you think of the immunity syndrome? It was interesting because it connects to the meta plot of the series, which, you know, is what mine will be, where they disperse Jack the Ripper's atoms. He goes back in time. He comes back as these single cells that fuck everything up. This is the second time we've seen a single-celled organism being massively horrible. Uh, Operation Annihilate had another single-cell organism that destroyed things. I think they're related. Okay. Uh, they they might be yeah, but well, this was but this was an amoeba yeah it was just a single celled organism and it was also a giant and space it was amoeba. gonna fuck everyone shit well that's because the negative hole was a funnel which made everything very tiny I think that I saw that movie and it was erotic okay. <laughs> Uh, no, I, I, I really like this episode. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's it's really, really well done, and it's not anything that Star Trek hasn't done before. It's a general mystery. Something is attacking the ship. People are getting all lightheaded and fainty, um, and they have to figure out how to defeat it. But it's really well done, and uh, I, the thing I like the most about the episode is the act like like the best Star Trek or maybe the best original series episodes. Uh, the actual thread is almost incidental. It's kind of the MacGuffin. And the real meat of the episode is Kirk, Spock, and McCoy. You know, Spock and McCoy fighting it out. Um, there's a lot of really nice McCoy and Spock moments in yeah, the episode. Spock and McCoy episode. Yeah, where you really... this. I think this is the clearest indication yet that you really get that these these two men, um, you know, while while, while McCoy... Pretends not to like Spock, criticizes him. It's more his personality, and he's just sort of a cranky old sarcastic man. Um, Spock, of course, takes it because he's a great straight man. But they they consider themselves to be friends, I think. And uh, Kirk finds it difficult in this episode because he considers both of them to be you know, one of his closest friends and, and, and he really can't rank them. Maybe yeah, he has and to send one of them out to die in so. terms of skills as well. They are both, they do different things, but they're both in, uh, without peer in their fields. Yeah. Yeah. What, what, what do you, what do you think of the immunity syndrome, Zach? Uh, it's funny. I, uh, I remember a piece of the action before I watched it again, but I could not remember anything about the immunity syndrome. Um, and in fact, even after watching the whole thing, I didn't remember having watched it before. And then I went back and looked at my review, and I actually, in the first paragraph of my review, I'm like, I, I was like, how did I forget this? I know I've seen this before. It has a giant fucking space amoeba, and I somehow <laughs> did not remember that. I, I love this episode. I think it's one. Of, I think it's a great. I think it's a fantastic episode. It does everything I, I really want a Trek episode to do. It has a cool monster. Uh, the the sci-fi like the science implications of the creature are, are really interesting just the idea of like this I, it, it adds to the sense that they're the enterprise is just kind of roaming around space running into these incredibly weird inexplicable huge things that can destroy you know planets and stuff um and i love the character reaction like you guys were talking about the stuff between mccoy and and, and spock which is one of the the best relationships on the show just you know, the, the, the central relationship is Kirk, McCoy, Spock, where, like, McCoy is kind of – everyone always says McCoy is always the uh, – McCoy is kind of the id 
and and Spock's like the the ego or the super ego where McCoy's basically just ranting. I think I got those right this time. McCoy's <laughs> like ranting and kind of McCoy's always over emotional, always goes for the worst. Like and McCoy's kind of space racist. Um, yeah. if you notice like he, like well, he's constantly bitching about like Vulcan blood like the fact that he's he's testing uh, Spock and at the end of the test goes I think you look okay if my instruments can read any of your crazy Vulcan insides it's like you guys have been working together for years now why do yeah. you not have this information in your system why do you, why is it still astonishing that he's a Vulcan it's, but almost, you know, it's uh, almost like McCoy is offended that 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 like Spock has different readings because he's an alien like I know it's just bizarre yeah. that he would be like yeah, that well, but no, I, I, because I've seen this before. When you see, you know, groups of mixed pair friends, I mean, they will occasionally, you know, make racist jokes to each other. I've seen this, be, but as a way of, you know, making I, a different. I, you know, I'm gay, and you know, my straight friends will make you know gay jokes from time to time, but they're always done with a certain respect, as just a, well, yeah, you know, we're gonna make fun of everything because we're friends, and I think that I just, think well. I th- I, I I think the the difference is with the Spock and McCoy. I think there is an edge there. I do think that they are. I don't know if I. It's it's tough to hmm. say how close they are as friends. I think there's a friendship there, but I think without Kirk, I don't know how close they would stay. I think that's one of to me is one of the the really interesting things about their relationship is they they say harsh things to each other. They're not joke like huh. when McCoy when Spock basically says McCoy, you know. A bunch of my people just died, so you know maybe you should feel a little bit bad for that, you son of a bitch. Like that's not him just joshing him. There's actual some antagonist. Then the fact that when they're both put in extremes, they they do want they don't want the other one dead. There's actual honest. There's a bond between them, but at the same time, there is a very legitimate antagonism. Um, and I don't think it's all just casual friend joking. Like I I, I do. Th- I mean, I know what you're saying. And yeah, I, no, yeah. that's that's a fair point. I wonder uh, if it's the then one of those. You know, Spock's a Vulcan, but he's one of the good Vulcans type of thing. Well, I think it's basically that, that McCoy represents everything that Spock tries to deny about his own humanity. Like, McCoy is pretty much all emotion, whereas Spock spends his whole time trying to be huh. as much as cold and calculating as possible. So they both have this inherent distrust of each other, and yet you can't have a reasonable point of view without having both sides. Yugi I mean, and I- shadow archetypes! It's so <laughs> great! <laughs> Oh God! Uh, you're 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 really pleasing the, the <laughs> literature student in Richard right now. Uh, now you know I I think that's an interesting point, and I, I don't think that's anything that I've ever really sort of like um, consciously uh, thought before. But yeah, the the, no. the the Spock and McCoy relationship is kind of the relationship that two people have when they are they're not friends necessarily, but they have a friend in common and they get to know each other through that friend, whether they work together or they just hang out a lot with that friend. Um, and there's always that, you know, that, that, that weird sense of, uh, you know, everybody has friends that they've met in different places and they may not interact. And when, you know, two friends that you have that hang out with you that have never been in the same room together before, and I think there's this sense that you let different sides of your personality out with different people. And there's only maybe a few people, um, depending on the personality type that you have, that mm. you can really reveal the full, like, the, the full majestic majesty <laughs> of who you are as a person. You know? <laughs> well, we and, can just write video game credit to do that. <laughs> um, but I think, you know, and I, and I, I, you know, there is really a sense that I don't, I don't ever see Spock and McCoy hanging out. And I don't think that they would... Um, they certainly wouldn't talk to each other if they didn't have Kirk in common. But 
there's also a sense there that I think that they they care about each other because they 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 work closely together and they've come to care about each They're other. Comrades. Yeah, but I also think that there is a part of it too where they care about each other because they know what the other's death would do to their friend Kirk. That's actually yeah, but and and I think there's also it has to be tempered by a respect slash rivalry between them because they are bo- number one they're both you know high officers on the Enterprise which. You know, time and time again, we're told is the best ship. They have the best captain. You know, they are both, again, as I said, peerless in their fields. Uh, they know each other is one of the best, you know, it's one of the best. You know, Bones knows that Spock is one of the best first officers. You know, Spock knows that Bones is one of the best doctors. Um, they're both men of science, but they take it in different ways. Um, one of the implications I got in that this episode is that Spock thinks that McCoy science is a little too soft because it's not theoretical enough, you know. Meanwhile, McCoy thinks, well, you're not using that to apply to it to anything. You know, he, he, Spock wants to study this thing because of the pure, you know, science of it. McCoy wants to apply it in a way. It, 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 it I, I think that's a diff, that, that, that's a fact of it too. Uh, they, they don't like each other, but they know each other's work is, is great. Yeah, no, I definitely think that's true. And, you know, it. I, I, you know, Zach's point to, um, you know, when 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 Spock brings up the fact that you know four hundred of his people just died on this ship, and 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 McCoy yeah. is is kind of being a dick about it. Um, and I and I don't think that McCoy necessarily necessarily wants to be a dick or thinks that he's being a dick, but uh, well, the, he's almost. Yeah. I think he's almost um, in that in that way of his. I think he's almost needling Spock to see exactly how emotionless he is mm. because. Of course, and I, I, you know, and, and and we can talk about the implications of, of of what it actually means that there's a there's a starship out there crewed entirely by Vulcans, um, but that's kind of there too, I think. Well, what I think is interesting about that scene is not as much. Uh, well, let's pretend that you know, what I think is most interesting about that scene is that. In a sense, Spock is telling McCoy he's not being emotional enough. Because um, what, how Spock responds, it, you know, through just trying not to kill Bones is he says, you know, that's one of the things I don't understand about your people. Um, you know, one you can understand, you know, one person dying is sad, but you know, he basically says the one one death is a tragedy, a million is a statistic thing. Um, from Spock's point of view, if one person is dead. 400 people dead is 400 times as sad as that. And, you know, Spock is dealing with a crippling 400 people of his own race have died. Uh, McCoy views 400 people as an abstract number. I, I think Spock is saying, yeah, McCoy is saying, why are you so upset about this? It's just one ship. Uh, you know, it's just a ship crew. And Spock is saying it's 400 people. Yeah, and I, I, you know, there's that great line in the episode where they're talking about that, and and Spock says that that at the end of their life, um, the they all the Vulcans on the ship uh, didn't know what was killing them and didn't know that they were dying, and they felt astonishment. And so there's this implication that um, at the very moment of death, you know, when when perhaps all of your mental barriers are down, that Vulcans kind of get like a sudden influx of some sort of emotion and that they maybe can't handle it. Well, he said that, you know, Vulcans have never been conquered. This is the, one of the first ships in history. So what 
they're doing is historically inconceivable to them. So yeah, it's astonishment because it's something that logically, quote unquote, can never happen. Uh, I want to get a little uh, a little Trek nerd for a minute because uh, the the what is the name of the ship the the Intrepid? Um, sure. Yeah, <laughs> I was right. I just checked my notes. The Intrepid. Uh, I, you know, it's a little weird because um, I believe that I don't know if it had been established yet, but but Spock was supposed to be the first Vulcan in Starfleet, which is a little weird um, in and of itself. But so so you know. What is this ship? Because of course, intrepid is a is a is a human word, right? And it sounds kind of like what a what a human would give a, a starship as a name. There is a pretty uh, famous you know battleship or whatever, yeah, submarine, whatever. Yeah, the Go. USS Intrepid. Yeah, um, which I'm assuming they probably uh, borrowed for that, um, as they did a lot of times. But you know, wh- you know that that's kind of weird too, because there there's no sense of of, of what the Vulcan. Um, you know, they're, they're, I think what what the Vulcans were doing out there, and also uh, what what relevance does it have to the themes of the episode uh, that the ship was was crewed entirely by Vulcans? Um, I mean, Zach or Richard, you can you can jump oh, in if you have thoughts. I'll let Zach handle this one. Ah, <laughs> uh, gosh, I don't know. Um... <laughs> yeah, that's why I wanted you to handle this one. <laughs> I, I I think it's mostly. I don't know. Sometimes it's it's hard for me with Star Trek because I think there's stuff that has greater depth to it, and then sometimes I just think that they basically said, "Oh, what'd it be like if we had a ship full of Vulcans?" Yeah, yeah sometimes what? a Vulcan Let, ship is just give, a Vulcan ship. Let's give Spock a reason to be mad. We're also completely forgetting that the that the big blobby black space also like destroyed a I think an entire solar system. Oh yeah, with billions of people. Yeah, that's a good. Yeah, point. so it's not just like the 400 that got killed. There were a lot of people. I mean, that's that's also a fairly typical thing for the original series is that they would you know it's like every other week an entire civilization was wiped off the Earth or wiped off some planet or another. Um, they basically just again it's a fa- it's a factor of the original series. They did not really worry much about continuity so you could basically just have these huge numbers of deaths that you really just did for shock value not thinking in terms of well what would the implications be for everybody else for the long term which is something you would see more of in say next gen or ds9 but that's Uh, spock's exact point then basically saying like you know we're seeing all these civilizations you know get, get wiped off the face of you know the galaxy as plot points just whatever yeah yeah Interesting. Um, Us humans are not very emotional when it comes to large deaths. Yeah. Huh. Yeah, it's just because it's also sort of like you'll notice that even after Spock has his little grief moment, and then you could say that that's motivating him for the rest of the episode, but then nobody really gets into once they get sucked into that big black cloud, which I, I do want to say is a terrific visual. I still think, I mean, I watched the original effects um, when I watched these episodes, and sometimes the original effects can, you know, they're dodgy for obvious reasons, but I still think that just looks so striking and weird and cool. The sign of like this completely black space and this glowing amoeba and the enterprise just sort of sailing towards it. It's just such a bizarre visual, but as soon as they get inside, it just because everything becomes a matter of survival. Nobody really talks about the implication of anybody being dead anymore. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that, you know, what, what, what's that line about, you know, imminent death uh, clarifies the mind like nothing else. And so, you know, maybe that's just it. And so uh, they've been in this situation many times before and they they, they know exactly um, what this feels like and what they need to do to get out of this situation. Well, that was one of the major themes of the episode I found. Um, We've talked a few times about what happens when somebody on the Enterprise isn't able to do their job to the best of the ability or is having a freak out. And there's several times, you know, when... Kirk is scolding Pete, you know, he's saying to Spock, you know, what is this? I don't know that 
you're my science officer. Give me an answer. You know, he tells, you know, Scotty, you know, what's going to happen. I don't know. Well, you're, you're, you're my chief engineer. You've got to fix this. Um, so I think he's inspiring everybody to be at an extremely high level of confidence just because, no, you're on the Enterprise. I'm Captain Kirk. You, you just, you didn't get to be here because, you know, I liked you. You got to be here because you are the best of the best, you know. Which and, is which is actually interesting in light of Abrams' Star Trek movie because um, the, the, the crew of the Enterprise, there's an implication there that they are part of his crew because he likes them. Yeah. So. Well, that's 2012 for you. Yeah, that's true. Everything um, has to be about us now. I don't know what year I'm in. Um, but, 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 and at the very end of the episode, I mean, you have Spock who is, you know, doing this mission and just trying his best, you know, even in certain death, just because that's what he's got to do. He's Spock. He's the science officer on the Enterprise, you know. Towards the end, um, they're, they're talking about, you know, power levels or something. You know, Scotty gives a report and, you know, Kirk says, well, just make it happen. And Scotty at this point doesn't even question it. I think the interesting part of this episode is not the amoeba, but the not even Kirk, not even Bones and, and Spock, but, but Kirk disciplining his, not disciplining his crew, but showing the mechanics of how Kirk gets this to be a, such a well-oiled machine. Because this is a crew that's exhausted at this point. I mean, we're very specifically told that for the first time they've done another difficult mission and they just want to take a week off. Yeah, they're um, supposed to go for, for short leave or whatever. Yeah, and this yeah. thing is too major. So I, 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 I've said several times Captain Kirk didn't get to be Captain Kirk by failing. He got to be Captain Kirk by either being perfect or fixing it. The show says you don't get to be a starship captain and the cap and the, uh, the 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 star of the TV series unless you are at an extremely high level all the time. And I think that's a really interesting and nice message for the show to have. You know, you are people who have a lot of potential. There is no excuse to not being on that all the time. Yeah, yeah. I, you, even if even if McCoy has to pump you full of cocaine. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that was great. That was great. It's stimulant. We keep having to shoot you up high on drugs. <laughs> I mean, that's something that McCoy does. It seems like at the drop of a hat, he's just ready to inject <laughs> something into everybody. I, I, I'd on the be show. like, okay, well, this isn't the disease that made you crazy and sit on the sitting on the edge of forever, right? Because I don't want that. That <laughs> not, not work out well for anyone. I don't even know if we had that had that medicine. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, now he's he's injecting everybody with, uh, you know, let's say coffee. <laughs> yeah, sure, coffee. Yeah, yeah, that'd be a funny line. You know, maybe just Kirk is like, yeah, instead of injecting everybody with a powerful stimulant, maybe nah. we should just make everybody a pot of coffee. Yeah, let's try that, or give them some uh, give them some Advil cold and sinus. Maybe that, that would that help. does connect to one of my favorite. I one of my, another a neat idea in the episode is that idea that. Basically, going into that black cloud saps everybody of their energy, and like it just makes everybody kind of. I just like that. I just think that's such a neat idea that everybody in the ship is suddenly just sort of sluggish, and you know they're all suddenly suffering from seasonal affective disorder. Um, <laughs> it's just really depressed and crappy feeling. I, I just I don't know. I just think that's that's cool. Just like, and it makes it makes the basic sense that the space amoeba is sucking energy out, even if I don't know. I, it, it's one of those episodes that I think holds together very well. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that's a good point, and I think that also ties into the. I mean, because we haven't touched on. Uh, you know the 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 overarching like science fiction concept of the episode, which is that um, 
you know, there's this idea that 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 uh, humanoid life is is the antibody of the galaxy, and it's there yeah. to stop the amoeba. And so that was the, a nice metaphor. I yeah, like, like the the amoeba is making them sick, but they're making the amoeba sick as well. Yeah, well, I mean, it talks, uh, it, it 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 gets that very uncomfortable suggestion uh, that I'm very glad they didn't, you know, really follow through because, but when they're saying, you know. Yeah, this is attacking us, or we're attacking it. You know, the 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 only if, if, if this amoeba happened to exist, you know, hundreds of years earlier, it would have already taken over, and it would have been the dominant form. And then, you know, it, it, it's suggesting that there is no good or evil from either side. It's just each is protecting itself, which yeah. is a fairly sad theme, almost. You know. That they, here is this, you know, that it suggests that there are certain kinds of life that just cannot coexist. Well, now I'm depressed. Yeah. <laughs> I also think it, also the episode is kind of terrifying in some implications because this thing is about to reproduce. And if this had spawned in a quadrant of the galaxy that there didn't happen to be, you know, people around it would have reproduced and as they say there would have been two then four then eight then you know so yeah we are seconds away from some gigantic horrible monster just taking over everything and it's only sheer luck of that kirk happens to be there sometimes it's lucky that we just you know it happened after we developed space travel too i know Uh (laughs) yeah that's true because otherwise you know we all would have been just totally fucked holy shit guys what if like we are the amoebas and we already have taken over Whoa. Oh my god! Uh, right, I, I'm blown. Totally. Away. Yeah, I'm just blown away. Uh, yeah, it's actually. I think that's linked to uh, Wolf in the Fold as well, because oh no. there's there's that that line in Wolf in the Fold where, and you know, you you can say a lot of things about Wolf in the Fold, and and, and we did say a lot of things <laughs> about Wolf in the Fold, as 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 listeners well know. But um, there's a line in the episode at the very, not Wolf in the Fold. I'm sorry, Obsession. Uh, where at the very end, there's the the implication that the 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 sort of like gas cloud that's killing people um, is about to is about to reproduce, and um, it it kind of like I don't know that it it you know I don't think it's anything that the show is doing deliberately. I just think that uh, it's it's one more way for them to ratchet up the tension of the moment where the the big bad at the in the episode is pregnant and is about to make more big bads, and so. That you know, I that that's maybe one of those um one of those weird Star Trek tropes that I don't know if anyone has ever commented on before, but that does happen quite a bit. But then again, look at the Devil in the Dark, which is the big bad is about to reproduce and make other big bads, and then before they are about to destroy it, they realize, well, actually, it's okay if it does because they're just eating rocks, and we can, you know, all. You know, and, and, and at the end of the episode, they do manage to broker a deal with the Horta. I've been waiting for Spock to mind meld with any creature in the past, like, half dozen episodes, and he is not. Yeah, he might be afraid to. I thought he would have melded with the amoeba. I honestly thought that was going to happen. I keep waiting for that to happen. Well, there's the, but there's a sense, though, and, and maybe, you know, Zach can correct me if I'm wrong on this, but uh, there is... Uh, I think the idea was there that that Spock had to actually touch something yeah. to to yes. mind meld with them. Yeah, and it actually has to have a mind. A giant space okay. amoeba isn't going to have a mind. Well, that that sounds speciesist. 
How do you know it doesn't have it, a it's mind? A, it's an amoeba. amoeba uh, look, do you know? Are you an amoebiologist? Maybe he is. Are you an amoebiologist? I, I learned it in like eighth grade science class. I'm okay, well then, that that that's more than I've See, the, had the in my life. See, the thing you have to realize about Richard is that many times, and I, I I'm not, you know, I do this as well. He just he be he argues just to be argumentative. No, uh, I don't. Yeah, yeah, you do. <laughs> Uh, no, because, you know, an amoeba doesn't have a mind, of course, because no, amoeba is a single-celled organism, and so hmm. you, you can't have a mind with one Damn cell. Uh, we could have a really, really, really stupid mind. There you go. I'm sorry. Maybe, maybe you have one cell in your brain. Obviously, I do. Uh, I, the one other thing that I really like about this episode is, is the very end when Spock sort of... Um, we haven't really touched on... Um, the Kirk decision that he has to make between sending Spock and McCoy in the shuttlecraft to try and 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 probe the the amoeba and find out exactly. Can, yeah, can I could just pause it? I I love one of the things I love of the original series that they at least tried to address in next gen is how anytime anything major like that happens, it has to be one of the main crewmen who goes. <laughs> Nobody says we have a ship full of like four hundred people, and I'm sure many of them are qualified and are also not the captain or first officer. <laughs> so maybe we should send somebody who's dead wouldn't be an incredible depress not not that we want you to die but it's just this idea that the command crew always has to go out on the most dangerous missions it's kind of amazing yeah and i you know that that's obviously just a just a legacy of of, of it being a television show and yeah and oh want, yeah i just find it funny yeah you want you want your most interesting characters to to be the people who are doing the dangerous uh dangerous shit um and, yeah you're right i mean there that that was something that was very much designed i mean the next generation um definitely you know the whole thing about uh there i think there was a rule in their in their bible that picard would never go on away missions because yeah because Riker had that Riker always stopped um Stu, that was right one of Riker's job was was stopping uh, um picard from yeah yeah and, and 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 the original series you know spock is the first officer but that's not his primary role his primary yeah. role is science officer so it's sort of like you know and also it's just again it's it's a western in space and so you know kirk is the cowboy and he's going to go do shit. We were talking once and you suggested that, you know, admirals and Starfleet have little responsibility. One of that reasoning being that the Federation kind of has that as in a built in safeguard to not have uh, one person get too much power. Uh-huh. So in other words, they just kind of promote people upstairs. Maybe that's an evolving concept in the franchise. Cause I mean, you don't get Picard on away messages because he's slowly being pushed to an office. Yeah, that could be. I mean, totally. Um, I, I didn't think... think it was even a question though between Bones and uh, Spock. Just and I was, it seemed out of character for McCoy to even be volunteering because he hates te- going out of the ship. Yeah, that's true. And he not does. as much as Scotty, but. McCoy doesn't really like it being outside. He doesn't like going on away missions. Well, it's 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 funny, right? Because I think, you know, in, in one sense, yeah, you could view it as out of character for McCoy to want to go on this mission. But on the other hand... Uh, yeah, um, I mean, there were some obvious... There are some obvious things going on there. And I think, you know, uh, there's... He, ha- he has... I think he feels a responsibility there because he's tasked with making sure that the crew stays healthy and this thing is is number one making the crew sick and he's trying to do what he can and so i think he's like well if i can attack the problem at its source then i'll take care of it um it's also scientific curiosity for him and you know if you if you look at some things that he's done in the past like for example again with the horta and devil in the dark uh 
he definitely feels a responsibility and sort of a scientific interest in um, these sorts of things. Maybe not to the degree that Spock does and maybe not. I mean, Spock definitely finds anything weird really fascinating. Uh, McCoy maybe finds them fascinating if he feels that he can learn something from it that he can then use concretely. Yeah. Uh, But there's that great... There's that great line at, at, at towards the end of the episode when they're they're finally figured out how to destroy the amoeba by shooting it with antimatter, um, which I believe may be the first time that antimatter is mentioned. No, it in was Star mentioned Trek. in another one, and I don't remember the episode, but it was that it was one of the ones I hated. Maybe Wolf in the Fold, and oh. it was it, it was the one where there was the younger officer who was the son of the guy that was. Oh, this this was the the, the, the beastie one, the the, 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 the obsession. Um, where okay. there's that random, you know, antimatter is powerful, G Captain. Well, let's hope it's the most powerful man gets. <laughs> um, but but there's that. Oh, that... wasn't it also the the oh the, the awful awful episode um, <laughs> at the end of the end of the first season where um you had the guy with the from the other universe. The alternative oh no factor. no yes, no like no. One of my least favorite episodes of the entire series. Oh, that... Sorry. Anyways, I just uh... don't understand what that. Okay. Can you is is there any possible way you understand the plot of the 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 the, the alternative factor? Please tell us you do because I don't know what happened in it. I think it was basically that this scientist found the antimatter version of himself and decided that the antimatter version of himself was going to destroy him or something. So he had to destroy him first. But that if he touched him, they would. It was yeah. It was a stupid episode. <laughs> and you very won't... sloppy and. And you will notice that Zach said or something because yes. nobody understands the plot of the alternative factor because it is incomprehensible. I mean, I love the freakout sequences. No, it's it's just I think it, I, Spock's brain is sort of the classic episode, you know, sort of the classic worst episode of the original series. It's Can't not wait for it. the alternative factor is. Yeah, Spock's brain is at least entertainingly awful. It's yeah. like really, really funny and how awful it is. The alternative factor is just a mess. It's just it's it's incomprehensibly bad, and it's it. And not only that, it's boring, in a, in a way that the original series was very rarely boring. Um, well, I think that gets us in a depressing note. <laughs> <laughs> well, I will, I will, I will end our conversation on on uh, on the immunity syndrome with this. Uh, the the very end of the episode when you know again they're they're figured out how to destroy the thing and they shot it with antimatter and they're backing out um, by going in forward which I like it's kind of a cool little thing uh, mm-hmm. they find that Spock is still alive and they they put a tractor beam on it and and they're all freaking out and 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 Scotty's like oh, I can't do that Captain that's you know that's like a whore in a hen house or whatever I don't know what the hell he said uh, and. Uh, you know, but 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 McCoy's like, we're putting a damn tractor beam on you, Spock. Don't say we're not. And Spock's like, okay, well, thank you very much, Captain McCoy. <laughs> <laughs> that's a nice little. I think that's a nice little way to sum the episode up. Yeah. All right, so let's triple it out, uh, Richard. This is an eight triple episode. All right, Zach. Ten. Ten. Oh. Wow! Look at that. Uh, we got two tri- two te- two ten triples this week. Yeah, I, I did not expect that with these two episodes. Give us a ten, come on, man, make it three. No, I'm gi- I'm giving it a nine because I I I to have a ten, it has to be in I think in my top five, and this yeah. is not in my top five. Okay, but all right. Well, uh, next week we are going to discuss uh, a private little war and return to tomorrow. 
uh, Zach, thank you very much for joining us. This has been uh, this has been very enjoyable, and I think you know uh, it's been good to have someone who has some Star Trek knowledge here. Um, and uh, uh, it was fun to gang up on Richard. So thank you for that. <laughs> thank you very much for having me. It was great.